live. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Mind Over Matter. This one's a super special one. Very fortunate to be on here with Kev. He brought his uncle on. Uh, he was part of the NYPD during 9-11. Uh, Kev, I'll toss it to you. Yeah, so this being September 11th, I think that one thing we should do is just kind of hear some of the stories of the people that were there. And I think that the human element of that time just kind of gets lost sometimes. We all know that what happened, but we don't really hear the human side of the story to that. So I brought on my uncle. He was in the New York Police Department during 9-11, and he is going to tell us all about his story and how everything went. So with that being said, let's get into it. Yes, sir. Let's do it. Go ahead, Kev. Welcome to the uh, Mind Over Matter podcast. Today being September 11th, I thought that it would be a great idea to have someone on that was actually there and can tell us a little bit about what it was like. A lot of us young people don't really, can't really conceptualize a lot of what happened that day. I mean, I'll go into what I remember a little bit down the road. I'm sure Trevor doesn't remember anything. And uh, I think that it is it's just far too of an important story to not be told so very thankful to have my uncle eric here he was actually there in new york city on 9-11 and we are going to get into his story so um eric if you want to just give a quick introduction kind of who you are and what you've been up to yeah absolutely thank you guys for having me this is actually an honor to uh, to be here to talk about this because uh, as you can imagine for someone who was there and responded as a police officer this is something that's uh, really important to me and as a school teacher now, it's something I talk about with my students still every year. So um, when September 11th hit, I was uh, I was only a little over a year onto the job. Um, so we're still fairly new, just kind of figuring out my way how to be a police officer, let alone how to deal with something so catastrophic as that day. I had worked a midnight shift that day. I was on midnights. That's how new I was at the apartment that I was a midnight guy, which means I went in at 11 p.m. and got off at 7.30 a.m. Like, like military, police, it's always open rookie yeah rookie exactly earn your stay yeah so i was home and uh when i got home at that time is when i ate my breakfast slash dinner and i was home just relaxing getting ready to go to sleep for the night and uh, like every morning i did i was just kind of watching the news and got the breaking on the news that some kind of small plane had hit the world trade center Thinking nothing of it, knowing I worked, I lived and worked in Brooklyn at this time, and the World Trade Center was in Manhattan, so it wasn't the borough that I worked in, the, not the borough that I lived in. But my wife was working in the borough. She worked in Manhattan at the time. Uh, I knew where she worked in relation to the World Trade Center, so I really, at that time, initially was not all that concerned about, not about anything, just about the people who was going to be directly involved right there. But they told you it was a small plane, so that could be like a little Cessna. They didn't say it was... Like, you didn't know it was a passenger plane at that point. No, and especially in New York City. I figure there's a lot of tourist helicopters around that area. Um, there's, you know, Teterboro Airport right there. So it's not common for small planes to be flying right over those buildings, but there are small aircraft in that area. And 10 years earlier, we had had an incident um, at the World Trade Center. So at that time, this initial time, you know, me being home now, not at work, uh, and still before more information, we just figured it was some kind of small plane aircraft. Uh, again, this is this is fairly right away when it happened. So at that time, um, I went downstairs uh, with my Aunt Teresa, because um, that's whose apartment I was living at. And her son was a firefighter. And, you know, she and he worked in Brooklyn. So not overly concerned, because at that time we, you know, we kind of figured it wasn't a big deal. And then after watching about 45 minutes, I remember watching on television the second plane hitting live. And as soon as it hit the building, my television went out because the broadcast antenna was on top of that World Trade Center tower. Wait, you were watching it live then? Yes, because the news was broadcasting, right? So I'm home now. Oh, shit. Um, watching it on television. And uh, as we're watching it, and you might have seen the footage these days, but it was broadcast news, and you can see the second plane fly right into that tower, and then my TV went out instantly. And kind of like, whoa, I don't think that was the first, yeah. I, think that was, I think that was something new, right? We were like, that's not a replay of what just happened. And that's when things started escalating quickly. 
Was there um, any indication that there was another plane? Like, other than that video right there, um, and again, you can imagine, right? And you guys have been involved in it. When there's chaos, the radio is chaotic. Because I remember talking to my buddies when I finally got into work. Like, police and the fire radios were jumping like crazy. You couldn't get a word in because now you got a second plane. You got people yelling into the into the radios, and we didn't train for something like this. This was not something that was in our handbook. This is not something that we prepared for. So we're kind of learning on the fly at this point, which gets me to where I move forward in my story now that about an hour after that second plane, you know, I was off now. I had just worked at midnight. They called in every single firefighter and every single police officer. If you were off duty, you were to report back to your precinct or firehouse. Because now we know a little bit more information. Now we are knowing that it's two passenger planes. Okay. And now we have two buildings on fire with chaos going on downtown. This is the point where I started to get a little bit more nervous. Like, this is this is looking pretty bad here. This is two planes. And then the news breaks. I'm trying to remember if it was the Pentagon getting hit or the one that went down in Shanksville, Pennsylvania, where we knew now, okay, it's on purpose. There's something going on. And the big worry is what's going to happen next, right? Whatever's going on, it's not done yet because that's not an accident. It's two planes hitting it, not an accident, a plane hitting the Pentagon. So now we're worrying about what's going on next. Um, so at this point, we're all called back into our precincts. Firemen are called into it. We either go downtown, help it in that situation, or to cover your local precincts because you have people scared. You have chaos going on. And chaos brings out crime a lot. Right? So we need to make sure we maintain law and order in our precincts and answer 911 calls along with sending responders downtown to deal with that situation. What? What? So... You get, they call everyone into work, right? Right. And what was like the vibe, I guess, of everyone there? Yeah, that's a great question. The, the vibe on that was two things. It was one of uncertainty, which when you're in the police department, if you have uncertainty, that's never a good feeling, right? You, you, you want to be trained and prepared for every scenario that you come across. This way you can be ready for it. When you have uncertainty, that's not a good feeling. And the next one was nervousness because we didn't know what was coming next, yeah. right? I mean, we didn't know. And by the time I got to my precinct, both buildings had come down. Oh, and, my God. And, and, and that was a game changer because you see the building come down and you know you have massive life loss, right? So when that happened, right, everybody kind of got into a frenzy. Of, and it wasn't even anger yet. It was, what, what do we do now, right? My, my captain, the CEO of my precinct, He's like, I've never done this. You know, I'm, I'm learning just like you guys are. We, we didn't we didn't know what to do. And it was kind of like they sent thousands of cops all throughout the boroughs. They sent hundreds of cops downtown. The firemen got sent downtown because now you're in a rescue mode. Right. So now you're in uh, this full time rescue mode because we <laughs> we think we have hundreds, if not thousands of people trapped in these buildings. Right. Who need rescue. And that's a coordinated effort. That's like. You know, where, where, where the World Trade Center is in the downtown financial district, you have to get cars in, people out. So it's a ton of logistics. You need the tunnels closed. You need the bridges closed. You need to stop traffic. So it takes, you know, I'll speak for myself, police officers everywhere to close traffic, um, send people this way. We need people down digging. So to plan all that as it's happening in real time was a massive, massive undertaking that people way above me had to make. And, and you're in Manhattan too, which is not known for being like, able to get in and out of real easily oh yeah exactly you're talking a morning right it was 9 15 in the morning so people are going to work you have thousands and thousands of people coming in and out of manhattan every day to do work aside from touristy right the tourist season was kind of over you know after the summer but you're right kevin you just have in general people everywhere so we kind of like took our directions from our supervisors and kind of like figured out what to do now, my, my initial job on day one, again, I just worked at midnight. I went back to work. They sent people from my precinct to respond there. I did not go day one. I went day two because they needed us to cover patrol because 911 calls don't stop. Right? I didn't still think about they're that. Still domestic yeah, no, I haven't thought about that a single time. Every single time yeah. I thought about 911, I have not thought about like just within the cities around it. Like, yeah, they, like those people they, are probably they, going insane. Oh like, yeah, they, people they, at they home were, they, looking at the news are probably calling 
thinking, hey, are you guys on this yet? Like, because right, there's people right. like that. Yeah, and there's there's always something going on, right? We're busy enough, but again, you still have domestic violence, you still have assaults, you still have robberies going on, you still have disputes. So we still need to answer 911 calls while we're also sending people and concerned about loved ones, you know, at the towers. And we're, we're just talking on day one now. So you can imagine going to um, a noise complaint, right? I, I worked in the housing authority, so I worked, so I go to, you know, and I said, I remember telling these people, I remember saying like, you know, we're here for this. Do you, do you have any idea what's going on downtown right now? And we're getting dispatched because, you know, you two are playing your music too loud and arguing, like there are bigger problems, but it doesn't matter to a lot of people, right? So yeah. we still had to do our job. The firemen still had fires that they had to put out and, and people with um, um, health problems that they go to and car accidents are still happening. So the city is still going on, but meanwhile, you're adding in two buildings collapsing down with thousands of people trapped or dead. So that's Real quick, a lot going on at once. What did it look like visually in the first day? All right, so you, you'll probably be able to understand this, and Trevor, you probably can too. I, I always tell people it looked like Gotham City. Think of the darkness. I think of, like, the weird kind of lights because when I first got through there on my second day with the pile of rubble, right, you have 104 stories of rubble, two buildings, that smoldered, by the way, for, like, 36 days. It burned for 36 days. A month? Yes, the whole time. What that's how hot it was. So when you come through the, the tunnel and you come up right there, it was dark. It was eerie. There were ash everywhere. There were no people except for emergency workers at this time. Everything was shut down. Buildings had broken windows because when the buildings came down, all the debris went sideways and destroyed multiple buildings next to it. So it was a very eerie, and I always say it's the kind of like a Gotham City dark kind of feeling um, of being down there at that time. Are, are you okay if I show on screen the pictures from your Facebook of that day when we send this out? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay, yeah, I'll get yeah. some pictures. We'll post them now because I've seen those, and I'm like, it just looks like like hell, frankly. Yeah, it does. And some, some of those ones, and I, can, I don't know if they're all in there, but I can send you the other ones I have too that I – so as a historian, right, I'm a political science major from college, right? I love history. I knew this was a historical, right, not in a good way. But so what I did, and I'll age myself a little bit here, is that I bought a disposable camera, you know, to take down there with me when I did have a few minutes. I mean, we did 12-hour shifts down there, but I wanted to get some pictures to document, like, what was going on down there. And that was some of the pictures that you'll see on there of just streets in downtown Manhattan that you can't even see the street because it's covered in ash and paper. I mean, where I lived in Brooklyn, you know, we were getting ashes and paper to us in Brooklyn from from all the way downtown Manhattan. Yeah. No kidding. Did you ever like what was your immediate thought of who did it? Cuz like if, I'm thinking if something happened right now I'd be like fucking Russia's at something, you know? Yeah, like, right. That's what you think. I, yeah. I, so at the time, that was our initial thought was it probably was some of bin Laden because back in those days we had a lot of troubles with him. Yeah, the USS Cole, right? We had, you know, the World Trade Center 10 years earlier, you know, had the the bomb go off in the basement of it. So there had been some numerous um the U.S. Embassy in Kenya, right? There was numerous terrorist attacks that were leading up to this point. So that was the initial reaction. And jump ahead of my story a, a few days, and you guys might have seen the footage from it now, but when George Bush had down there for his first day, President Bush, right? I think it was day three. It was his first visit down there. And you can watch the footage of it, but he, he was down there and he had the megaphone in his hand. And I was about 10 feet away from him that day because that was one of my days I was in the bucket brigade. And he grabbed that microphone and he said, you know, I hear you. Because like a lot of people couldn't hear him because they were working further away and they're, they're yelling, we can't hear you, George. And they meant, they meant they literally couldn't hear him. And he says, well, I can hear you and you can trust me. The people who did this are going to hear us. Right? So even on day two or three, you know, they were made aware of who was responsible for this. And that was kind of like his vow Right. We were going to make sure we retaliate and let them know that you don't do this on American soil. And that statement right there got us all fired up is not the right word, but gave us the adrenaline rush to keep digging that day. Um, it was it was a great morale boost to have the president down there, whether you voted for him or not. Right. He was on the side of like every American that day. and He got us all going and moving forward just by saying something like that. Like, you know what? 
it's th th this doesn't end right here. And that's kind of what like kept us going for the next couple of days as we were still in the rescue, not recovery mode. We we're still in the rescue mode at that time. What is the bucket brigade? So, so I mean, that's literally right. Think of the pile of rubble. Okay. We could not bring in heavy machinery yet to start removing debris because if there's people under there live, we don't want to damage them or hurt them. So we would have guys with buckets getting debris and passing to the next guy to the hundredth guy for him to dump it in the truck. Wow. And then the next one. So we were putting rubble. What? Yeah. I could picture I mean, it, little rascals. I don't know if you ever seen that with them running around yeah. with a little bucket of water and they get to the Figure site like, and there's zero water left. That's exactly what it is. Yeah, Figuring like trying to empty a lake with buckets, but we were taking debris out. Wow. Um, because they didn't want to bring in the heavy trucks yet to just to, with the, you know, to start picking up debris in case someone was yeah. alive underneath there. So we did that for about the first five or six days. If you can just imagine the visual of hundreds of firefighters police officers and this is at a time when we had basic aspirators on right we're not thinking about any cancers any yeah. kind of diseases and stuff and as you see this shirt i'm wearing right now okay this shirt is a sergeant who worked in my command who was down there on a regular basis who ended up who passed away two years ago from 9-11 related cancer he developed throat cancer he was the healthiest wow. it, i mean he was the hulking mass in our precinct so those first responders, you know, who were down there exposed to this, we've lost hundreds of firefighters and police officers from cancer years later from what they developed that day because, again, they didn't stop us from digging. Like, I had an aspirator on, but there was tons of firemen who did nothing because they just wanted to find their brothers and sisters, yep. you know. So that's just another aspect that this all gets to tell you that even today people are losing lives from what happened on September 11th. Yeah, that to me is the remarkable thing is that – I would have to believe, even if they knew they were going to get cancer in 20 years, they probably would have still gone. Yeah, it, you know, and you guys are the perfect two guys for this, right? When, you're, when, you're, when your job is what it is, right, in the military, you're running into the fire, right? That's what you signed up for. You knew ahead of time. If your job is fire, police, military, and your job is to go help those, you do that in the face of danger, right? Otherwise, you're not in the right job. So yeah. there, was no, there was no stopping these guys. And we had... We had retired firemen. If you go back and watch George Bush on that first day when he's down there, he's got an elderly gentleman he's standing on the car with his, with his arm around. He was a retired fireman who responded there on his own time to go help dig. He had been retired for years, and he went down there to go dig down um, to try to find people, not even getting paid for it, just wanted to go down there and help. So it was, it was, it was a massive, massive <laughs> undertaking that lasted until July of the following year of getting all the debris out there. What? That was wow. part of that. July. Oh my God. So from the day it happened, okay, the bucket brigade, okay, turned into basically recovery of all of the buildings, right? Of everything. So everything had to be cleared out of there, right? You can't leave all that debris. So for the next, from September to July, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, it never stopped Christmas, New Year's Eve. There was always constant removal of debris being taken out of there and being sent to Staten Island to the Staten Island landfill which is where I spent half of my time to half of my time at ground zero. I would go down there half the time I would go to the Staten Island landfill. What they would do with the landfill is the large pieces of debris. We're talking giant pieces of metal. I mean, everything you can imagine gets dumped in a field. We would go out there. We'd have full Tyvek suits on. We have aspirators on boots, gloves. We would sift through anything we can find through all that to try to find any kind of evidence, whether it be driver's license, God. Whether it be bones, whether it be hair, shoes, we looked for any kind of evidence we can find to either give back to the family or help in the investigation. So I had I did that numerous days. That, now I was a police officer. I'm not a forensic pathologist, right? I, I'm not. Trained, <laughs> I'm, not right? I, I'm not trained in that. But they, that's what they had us do: um, go down there and sift through that. So then, after the big debris, they would take that to these giant sh sifters where these machines would vibrate like ridiculously fast and it would shake all these small pieces onto a conveyor belt. And we would sit there for hours and just watch the conveyor belt go by and look for smaller pieces of evidence. And I found wedding rings. I found, you know, a, a lot of hair. I found a lot of things in those sifters um, that we could give to the families back because you know, a lot of people were, were never found, like nothing. So if we were able to find someone's wedding ring, someone's driver's license, 
anything like that, the families were so grateful for. So, so we did that. I say we, the police department, we were the ones who did that until July, until that cleanup was finally done. So it took from <clears> September <throat> to July to get that ground zero site completely excavated, all the stuff to Staten Island and sifted through and collected. So it was, it was a massive undertaking. I'm trying to think of um, how you slept like you all this whole time. And then you said it lasts till July. So now it's, it's lasting six to eight months. However long that, <laughs> that is like, that's, how did you sleep throughout that time? Even the yeah, first couple that, days. That's a great question too, because when we got sent, remember I was, I was a midnight guy. So I would work, let's say I did two days of midnights. And then when you go to the landfill, it's during the day. So then I would do a day shift and then come back that night for a midnight shift. So the, the sleeping was tough on those ones. But what did help is that you were exhausted by the time you got home. Yeah. Right. Be, because there were no days off. So once they called everybody in that first day, they also canceled all days off. We call them RDOs, regular days off. Vacations canceled. They, they didn't give anybody, they needed everybody hands on deck. So we were working seven days a week, 12 hour shifts. Wait, the whole time? Well, for the, about the first 30 days, not the whole oh, time. Oh, okay. The first okay. month. Right? Still. So, yeah. So, yeah, still. So, <laughs> God. So I know. And, and you know, the one, the, the one positive of that is guys who are at the last year of their career for their pensions, the amount of overtime money, right? So, you know, we get paid for that stuff. So, Guys who were in their last year, they really banked their pension and were able to, you know, kind of go out with, you know, with that extra cash in their pocket. But yeah, we did 30 days without a day off working 12 hour shifts. Yeah. I mean, I can only think of one thing that probably kept you going was just like the, the sense of purpose. Like that's what kept me going a lot is like, I'd be exhausted, but I knew that what I was doing was helping. Oh yeah. And, 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 and helping and, and so necessary. Again, this is something that like, the least we can do now once we knew it was recovery right we're not in rescue anymore anymore you're right kevin that's like the, to be able to help out somebody help out a family right, who lost a loved one whose loved one completely disappeared off this planet if we could help them in any small way that was a driving motivational factor not just for me but for all the police down there because we went down there and worked our tails off i mean it, there was there was no quit whether it was the first hour of your shift or the 12th hour of your shift we give it everything we got because we knew there were people counting on us. And this is the job, you know, that we signed up for to help people. And this was the ultimate way that we could help somebody out is to go down there and give them everything that we had. Yeah, that's what I was just going to say. I, it's kind of comparable to overseas when going overseas. I mean, everybody in the Army within our shop was itching to go overseas. Like, a, like I, I can't wait to go over there because of that sense of purpose. You know, when you're over there, you're doing everything you can to save America or doing everything you can to help America save other people, whatever it is. So I can only imagine like sifting through anything and finding anything, that sense of purpose. When it ended at the end of the, in the end of July, how did you feel? Yeah, that was, um, it was kind of like a mixed thing. Like, you know, here we are, we're done now. Um, but it was also a sense of relief that here we are, we're done now. Yeah. Right? Cause it, 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 was, <laughs> it, it was a job that needed to be done. Um, it, it was a long job. I mean, the iron workers worked their tails off. I mean, fire department, rescue workers, we all put in as much as we could for it. And um, it was kind of a sense of, all right, we need to turn the page on this. We need to try to get back to as normal as we can. We, we were still at war at that time because this was like July. Um, and here we have, you know, the reminder right now, because at that point, the Freedom Tower wasn't built. It was two empty holes, you know, right down in lower Manhattan that you can see very well that was... You know, the World Trade Center is one of the most visited tourist attractions in the world. So, you know, there were people everywhere on that. So it was a, it was a, um, it was an exhale, but it was an exhale of like, what now? Right. Or, yeah. or something else, or something else going to happen on, you know, what else could possibly go wrong at this point? Cause remember Bin Laden was not found. We knew who it was now. He wasn't found at this point. So oh. everybody's kind of living on edge. Right. I mean, you know, he, he was not, know captured until years later so it was um it was still a everybody's gonna be on edge for a while here and and we were i mean we were regarding certain synagogues because we wanted to protect those people because there was you know a lot of anger you know towards the innocent you know people of that community who had nothing to do with it who were just amazing people so we had to have cops stationed over there we had extra cops in subway stations because subways are a big target i mean think of the chaos that would occur you know if something happens down the subway 
So the whole 9-11, it really changed the police and fire department too in how do you respond and how do you prepare for things like this, right? It was kind of like a, we were in a reactive mode. Now we had to get proactive. How can we get in front of it in case something like this happens? So Here we go. Uh, time for yeah, that. We're back. No, it's all good. We can just clip that section. Yeah, out. I'm glad you guys can edit that stuff out. Technical yeah. difficulties. Yep. Yeah, yeah, it's all good. Not the first time. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, go ahead. You can uh, jump right back um, in. Yeah, so what, what I was at here. So oh, don't forget at this time, right, like my wife, you know, Kevin's aunt was working in Manhattan, right? So like think of the commuters, right, the people who worked there. They couldn't get out. They closed all the bridges and tunnels because we didn't know if there's going to be another target. So people could not get out of Manhattan. Everything was closed. They didn't want anybody in or anybody out. So you have, you know, thousands, if not millions of people who want to leave Manhattan, who are not allowed to leave Manhattan until it was deemed safe. I have the worry of myself, worry of is she safe, right, along with the worry of everybody else. Again, the, the collective outreach that this caused um, was just indescribable. And I think even the people who did this, right, didn't realize, like, how much chaos it would actually cause on there because it, it, it just... It was so hard to get things moving because of what was going on at that time. And no one had cell phones either. No, that was not yeah. the big cell phone time. Yeah. Um, that that like would have been helpful. 20 pounds. <laughs> you know, and, and so like my parents at that time lived in Colorado, right? So when this happened, everybody started calling everybody and the phone lines were basically jammed. So I know my mother couldn't get a hold of me for a while. So then she's worried, was I sent down there? Was I in that building? I mean, she knew I didn't work in that borough, but you know, until you hear your loved one's voice, you, you want to make sure. So I remember that was like her big concern there. So you have so much going on at that time um, that it's almost mind boggling to talk about all the different things, you know, that were involved on those initial days and then for the months afterwards. Yeah, because that's one thing I remember. So I was five when 9-11 happened and I remember going home. And like everyone was sad, but I really didn't, I couldn't conceptualize why because I was five. Right. But in like in my mind, I'm going home for the day. Like I thought, it, I mean, it's going to sound bad, but I thought it was cool, I guess. So, but I remember my dad calling like everyone. It was just, he had a lot of family in Long Island in New York at that time. And he was like calling everyone. I'm like, why? Like, what is going on? Like my dad's just freaked out calling everyone on the phone. Like it, it was just kind of kind of a weird thing because yeah i'm getting off of school but like i i could tell that it wasn't a good good thing i guess yeah you had a feeling that something happened and something not good even at five years old right yeah yeah, yeah. Can, well, well i mean think about it this way kev like if you're if you're from new york right like your parents are like you, you probably know a cop you know a fireman you know someone who works in manhattan right the, Everybody's always got knows somebody or knows somebody of somebody. Oh, my, my best friend's brother is a cop or a fireman. So, like, you know, everybody almost kind of had like, well, I got a connection there. Even if I'm not there right now, I have a connection somehow, and I'm kind of feeling that too. Yeah, exactly. Everybody's got somebody who's got somebody. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, it is kind of the central, like, the entry point for most people who got to America from you know Europe. So it, it makes sense. Yeah, and, and we thought about that too. Is the Statue of Liberty going to be a target? You know. Yeah. Did you, when did you guys hear that the, the Pentagon got hit? So the, that morning, um, it was probably about 35 or 40 minutes after the initial um, plane hit the, hit the tower. I can't remember if it was the first or second tower is when the news broke that, hey, there's, there's been an explosion at the Pentagon and eyewitnesses are reporting that a plane hit that too. Mm. Uh, so that was the point, like we said, that we knew that there was intentional and that's why the FAA came in and said, ground all flights. Like, we need every plane, which is unprecedented. Think about how many thousands of flights are overhead. Right? They grounded every single flight for, like, the next three days. Until you can figure out what's going on, you can't have another plane being used as a missile. So just think of the, the logistics of doing that, of, of having every plane land safely, right? canceling everybody's flights and having everybody move to hotels, get taxis. It, it, it's just the overall aspect of it is just so almost incomprehensible about incomprehensible. My apologies about what what 
what this all led to, right? Just the just the grounding of the of the of the of the planes right, for the next day or two is amazing undertaking to to, to to go through. And this was back when, like, so my dad was telling me before nine eleven, you could pretty much walk right up to the plane, damn near. Like there wasn't like a TSA or anything. Yeah, everybody went through security. But it wasn't, you know, there wasn't, it wasn't like it is now. It was very basic, right? You wanted to pick up some of the gate, you walked to the gate. You wanted to drop some off the gate, you, you basically went to the gate. And that's when they changed it to ticketed passengers only. They didn't want anybody near that area that wasn't a ticketed passenger. Once again, a reactive situation that it's not even something that you would think about. Like, there's always been terrorism in airplanes, but they've never been used, right? They've never used a plane before. I guess yeah. you think about kamikaze pilots, you know, in World War II and down in Pearl Harbor. But, like, no one ever thought of, like, someone would take a, a, a personal, you know, airliner jet and hijack it and fly into, into buildings. It just wasn't even something on anybody's radar, which is why nobody really planned for that. So, um, hence all the changes now. The doors are locked for the cockpit. Um, you know, the security is only for, 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 for ticketed passengers. So it, it, so there are some good things that come out of this. You do learn from situations like this. Um, you know, it was seven months of really hard going to very, a lot of funerals. Um, the first, the first few and a lot of funerals I went to, um, there were empty caskets because nothing was ever found, right? Which is a really eerie and sad kind of um, experience to go to. And I remember, I remember the first one I went to was for a police officer from the emergency services unit. Um, there were 23 NYPD officers killed, and uh, I went to his first, and we knew that they never recovered him at all, you know, anything from him. I think they might have gotten his shield from the um, um, from Staten Island landfill, but I remember going to it, and, and they had the casket go by, and I remember saying, like, what's in there? I, yeah. and, and, just, and just thinking for that family, like his parents and his wife, like, here's a loved one that, like, I can't go visit him anywhere, right? He, he's not here anymore. So it's it's a really unbelievable thought. And this is something I tell my fifth graders every year when I do this presentation. I said, think about two office towers, right? That are both over 100 stories tall. Think about how many desks were in those towers, okay? I was at the Staten Island landfill. I went numerous times over seven months. I never found one desk. Meaning they were pulverized into an oblivion. What? We, had, we had wire, we had things like that where it was compact and destroyed so much, it was basically like unrecognizable. Like you don't see things like that. They were literally destroyed. So, which is why it made it so hard to find, you know, um, human bodies because if the desk can't make it, right, a human body is not going to get through much, which is why so many people, nothing was ever found, right? We found some bodies, we found a few, you know, um, body parts, you know, not to get gruesome, but, you know, found some body parts, but for many, many, there was nothing ever found, which is just awful for the families, which is one of those driving factors that make you want to go to work the next day to try to do the best you can to find something for them. Did, did you ever come across like any remains when you were doing your bucket brigade? I, I not at the bucket brigade, but at the landfill I did. And, um, th this was, this was actually, it made it to the sifters. So remember I told you about the big field would have the big stuff we'd sift through, then all that stuff would be picked up, put on the sifters and come down the conveyor belt. And there would be three, six of us, three on one side of the conveyor belt, three in the other. I mean, sitting in these basically kind of stools, watching mostly rocks go by all day, small debris. And all of a sudden coming down there is this part of a leg from like the knee down, the foot's still there, comes straight down there. We, we, we picked it up off of there and um, brought it to my sergeant. And, uh, he, you know, he, there's always supervisor. He said, all right, take it over to, uh, there's, a, there's a forensic unit over there. And we brought it over to them. And the guy was so thankful there. He's like, you have no idea comfort this will actually bring to a family. Because we'll be able to identify it through DNA. I assumed it was a female because they had painted toenails, right? I mean, obviously that's not a guarantee, but it was probably a female. We were... Excited is not the right word because of how morbid it was, but we were relieved that we would be able to give this back to a family. Like, it's like I said, with that coffin for the first, you know, had no had nobody in it. This family was going to get something back of their loved ones, and I was always thinking, like, if this happened to me, like, I would want my wife to get something back of me. So it was such a, it was such a feeling of like 
this has meaning what we're doing right now. These long shifts, staring at rocks go by for hours. This is going to help the family. And we, we heard from the family a week later, and they could not have been more thankful for the time we put in for finding that. Um, I mean, they were literally in tears about about that find and, and, and us doing that. So that's the kind of things that's, you know what, what we're doing matters. Yeah. So, yeah, so, so, so we, we didn't find a lot there, Kevin, because of the severity of the buildings and, and the force and impact. But we did find, you know, some things. We found a lot of little bones. Um, but that was the biggest thing that, that I had found and that I had heard of anybody finding at the landfill. Yeah. So people, people always say that we need, like, another 9-11 to reunite us. Before 9-11, were we divided? Was it a crazy divide like we have now? Was it something that we needed, something big like that, or did it just happen? I tell you what, boy, that's a really deep question, Trevor. I love that question. Hell yeah, um, hell yeah. You know, like, we were not as divided, okay? It, it was, you know, there's still your, your divide, you know, like there always going to be. Um, but that was something that literally brought every single person together. It didn't last ton of time right it's not we weren't divided like we are now yeah. but there was that period where it did feel like we were just kind of like one country not two countries not three countries you know it wasn't it wasn't a hatred um there was a little more understanding of people but this incident here kind of brought everybody together united under a common like we're americans here something horrendous happened we need to make sure this never happens again how do we fix it what can we do as a as a country not as this party, not as that party, not as military, not what can we all collectively do? Right? We knew the military would take the lead, but how can we support the military, right? Without being like a Vietnam and being against the military, which doesn't help morale. You know, you don't want to be doing something, having people at home telling you you're doing the wrong thing and you're just following orders. So it really did for a good while there get us in a spot where like feeling good, right? And, and you saw it. Like when the sporting events started happening again, you saw the American flags draping the whole outfield, right? You saw the football games, okay? The American flag taking the whole hundred yards and you got people standing up together being united on that. So it, it really was amazing, you know, how that happened. And I would never want that to happen again, but we could use that, that being united again under something obviously less, um, less, less catastrophic. That was... That was a good time, right, for America to like stick their chest out and just kind of show what we're made of and how we can band together in, 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 in times of like the worst possible, you know, thing you could ever imagine or think of happening to your country. I'm thinking of when George Bush threw that first pitch yeah. out at Yankee Stadium right down the pipe, man. Dude, that was the setter, right? And that was the Yankees in the World Series. Okay, unfortunately, we lost to Arizona in that World Series, but like that was something that like, and that, that's it. going back to Trevor's point. So if you bring out a president today to pitch out, right, you're going to have the Democrats cheer, the Republicans boo, right? That night, every single person stood on their feet and cheered for George Bush. It didn't matter your political affiliation, what you thought. He was the commander in chief leading our country. We were united and every single person stood and cheered louder than you could possibly imagine. And then when he threw that strike, it was like, damn, right? <laughs> yeah, right yeah. down the pipe, I mean, man. Woo! I mean, that was legit. If he would have bounced it, he still would have got the ball. <laughs> that was legit, man. When you're the leader of the, of the free world and you throw a strike in the World Series a few weeks after the worst, you know. And at the Yankees, too. At the Yankee and Stadium. Yankee it stadium. couldn't be something, you know, the Yankees themselves have always been like a big icon for, for baseball, American baseball. So it, it was cool for it to, I mean, it sucks it's in New York, but it like the Yankees, George Bush, the strike. I mean, it brought people together, and that's what they needed. Yeah, it, it was it was it was amazing right there, and and that's when the, you know the players were wearing hats. You know, this my New York, you can't really see it, but it's got the uh, it's got the American flag on it. But most of the players had FDNY on one side, they had NYPD, they had PAP, the Port Authority Police Department, because they lost members. So, like, I mean, we we banded together as a nation. There's no doubt about it. And too, like the symbology of George Bush going out there like by himself is what struck me like this was i don't know how long it was after the attack but it, i mean it could have been that long but he he walks out there and it's only him there's no secret yeah. service and like to me what that said is like yo we're not we're not afraid of y'all like yeah and i think that, that i think that was October his 30th. I think that was his decision okay yeah wow. i think that was his call to say you know what I, i'm going out there and doing it 
right? You know, I, I don't need anybody around me. I'm not worried about it. I, I, I'm a leader. What, what do leaders do? Leaders lead. Right? And what, how, do, how, do, how do the best leaders lead? They lead by example. I don't need your words. I need you to show me. That's what a good leader does. And he went out there and, and led, I mean, not just baseball. We led the country, like, follow me, get on my back. I got it. Right? And that's what, that's what a leader will do. Yeah, I remember my um, English teacher from high school talking to us about it, and she was telling me, she's like, I would never want 9-11 to happen again, but I would give anything for a 9-12, just because everyone was so, like, like unified, and people weren't, like, road raging, I'd imagine, at each other. No, there wasn't any of that. It, it was how do we help each other? I mean, it was people volunteering to collect cases of water to bring to us down, you know, at ground zero. Cause those first couple of days we're doing bucket brigades. I mean, you can imagine like, you know, you need to eat and drink, right? There's no restaurants around there open. So like we're getting food shipped in from long Island and water shipped in and people sleep wherever. So anybody would help out in any way they could, right? Whether it be donating water, driving this there, babysitting some fireman's kids because he's got to work for the next, you know, 30 days straight. I mean, everybody been together as best they could and did what they could to make a difference. And, and all that really mattered. I mean, no, nothing was too little, nothing was too big at that time. So it was an amazing time in America. Um, unfortunately, it took a tragedy to make that happen, um, but it was an amazing time, um, you know, for all the you know, people in our country, not, not just New Yorkers. Because right? I know people out West, like, you know, we're there with you, like we're doing everything we can. And we had fire departments from other counties and countries send supplies. Like, you know, we're all brothers and sisters at that time. We're, we're just going to do everything we can to help you guys out. Yeah, I mean, you said your mother was in Colorado even, right? So you got, I'm sure she was helping in any way, shape, or form. She yeah, was oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah, my grandma, oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, anything, anything possible that they could yeah. do, that they, that they would do. Even if at little that meant, hey, call, I'm going to call you and just talk to me, right? Yeah. Just let it off your chest, right? Whatever you need from me is what you're going to get. No questions asked. Yeah, did they provide y'all like any kind of like counseling following all this? So Kevin, your Aunt Kate for years has been saying she can't believe that there was no counseling giving. They, I mean, unless you went voluntarily, right? There was nothing given afterwards. Um, and again, trained police officer, not trained psychiatrist, psychologist, criminologist um so they did not give they didn't offer any of that um there was also a little stigma on the job like if you needed that kind of counseling services they're afraid maybe they're going to take your gun from you and like you know as they call you put you on the rubber gun squad and you can't go on the street anymore if you have psychological problems right because because there's, there, there's a stigma with getting counseling in the police department unfairly because sometimes people just need to talk doesn't mean they're not safe or they're going to hurt themselves so it was never offered and it really wasn't talked about that much. It's talked about more today about guys who were down there back then, you know, did they get themselves some help? Did they need the help? Um, do they need help today? Because there's still people nowadays who, you know, who did way more than I did, who saw a lot more than I did, who, who, still, have, who still have trouble with it. So um, it, it wasn't offered. And I think if something like that happened today, I think it's a little more okay to be able to get counseling without, you know, being told that you're crazy. You know, it's just supposed to help you. So I would hope if something like that happened, that they'd be a little more open towards something like that. I personally, and I've talked to my wife about this back in the day, I never felt like I need to get this out. I'm like feeling all pent up. And that's just how I am. Um, but I, I did know quite a few cops who, who, who did, probably could have used a little bit of extra talking and a little extra help in those kind of situations from dealing with the emotions that they had to deal with. I mean, we all handle our emotions different. Some people need a little extra help in dealing with those emotions. Yeah, because like you're a a very logical thinker. I mean, that's uh, I'm the same way. Like I have a job to do, I go and do it. But, yeah, I go pure logic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but like it it's just a remarkable thing that you would have to do and and be like, okay, if you get help, then you know you're going to get your gun taken away or like people are going to talk shit about you. It just it yeah, totally there though. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we had the same thing in the army. I was ask, you guys must have something similar, right? It's My like you go suffering see... from it right now. He, yeah, he, that's... he went to get out and he didn't tell the VA anything mental health related, and it bit him in the ass because now he's not getting his disability for it. But that's why he didn't tell him because the stigma. If, if yeah, I and... tell him, can I get? You know, will they take my guns? Well, who knows what can happen? 
Right. And, and that, that's a that's a real issue because, you know, there, there are military and police. When you go through the things that people go through, you know, a little talking might not be the worst thing. In fact, it might save someone's life because right? too many people are doing dumb things and, you know, taking their own lives because they didn't get the help that they needed because of that stigma that goes with that. So after 9-11 happened, you know, they didn't offer that kind of stuff. But I'm hoping some guys got it on their own and we kind of relied on each other our spouses, but you know, if you're a 22 year old rookie at that time, I, I was married and I was lucky, but you go home, live in your parents' house, you go home and play you know, video games that night, you might have no one to talk to. That might be really hard to deal with. So again, yeah, just another was, one uh, of the things that come along with this. That was my next question. Cause when I, when I hit my depression stage and everything, I, I mean, I was able to turn to Kevin right away. It was my leader. So it was nice, easy transition to go right into that. My buddy was able to just call me right up, talk mm. to me about it. Did, were you guys like that? Did you guys ever like do a dinner or something? Like, hey guys, come to my house. We'll just yeah, we we <laughs> we, we did, but I tell you what, the fire department, those guys are tired than police officers. Like those fire department guys, I mean, they they are each other's kids, godparents. They're those guys really yeah. did, and I know quite a few that really relied on each other. We did to a point, not as much as we probably should have. Um, looking back on it now, that would have been a good thing because, you know you can relate to somebody who's walked in your shoes, right? And you can help each other. Just like you said, like you turn to Kevin, right? You Kevin, you guys turn to each other because you can understand each other, right? You're not going to cast judgment on somebody. So we as police officers probably should have done that more, right? And which is an excellent point, right? Which probably is not brought up enough. Like, hey, maybe you guys should have relied on each other more and been open about it. You know what? Hey, I'm really suffering right here. But again, if I go tell that to my friend and he go tells the CO, next thing you know, my gun is taken and I'm inside for the next year. So I think it was more of that fear of like, if I open up, what's going to happen to me rather than how can I get help on this? Yeah. And, and I would hope that today, like today's military and police and fire, like think differently than like we did back then on that. Yeah, I think as a whole, we do. I think we're a little bit better about it now. One thing I think that is nice, if you could call it about the mental health problem is that it's so reliant on like an individual basis. Like if Trevor comes up to me and says he needs help, I can give him all the help that he needs in another way, every way that I can. Or like I can just say, quit being a bitch and get back to work. But like the, the individual can affect that problem. There's rarely problems that one person can affect, but mental health with talking to each other and getting help, like that is, that is something that only takes one person to kind of influence. Uh, definitely. And, and, you know, I'll use an example of like some of the firemen, some of those firehouses that were in Brooklyn that responded initially, right? There were some fire department firehouses there that lost 10, 12 out of their 20, 25 members. So half of their house right, ended up dying that day. How that couldn't affect the, the rest of the members when give your battalion, right? If you guys are out there, if you lose half, I mean, that shit, that's going to be like something that's going to weigh on you. Like, how do I deal with this? Just half of my brothers and sisters, we just lost it within a span of like 30 seconds. Right? How could that not affect you? So that happened to a lot. I mean, it was 343 firemen killed. That's a lot of firemen killed. Right? And a lot of them for just from a few different houses in Manhattan and Brooklyn who responded right there. So um, it, it was something that definitely affected um, people. And I think like going back to Trevor's question, I think the firemen did a, a great job of relying on each other okay, and their superiors. That's another thing. I don't know the military is, but the police department, the chain of command is so strict. Like you don't go three steps ahead, right? You don't have dinner with like your captain yeah. two steps ahead. The fire department, <laughs> the fire department, they're brothers and sisters, right? If you're the battalion chief or you're the, you're the probationary police fireman, I mean, they'll sit down and talk together. There's no issues there. Police department, we had that separation. So that's when the fire department really relied on each other in those kind of certain times. Yeah. It it depends on where you are in the military. Like I know with our hangar and our shop specifically, I I tried to make it to where like we all talked to each other and anyone felt comfortable talking to everyone. But I know with some places, yeah, you don't talk to your platoon sergeant without getting your squad leader involved. Yeah, exactly. When I, when I got so when I got promoted to sergeant in 2005, the precinct I went to in Jamaica, Queens, CO of that command, I remember him saying he's like, I don't have an open door policy. Go to your lieutenant and your, and your lieutenant will come to me. 
right? So, <laughs> I mean, it was like, don't come to me. Go to go to your boss, and your boss will come to me. So it wasn't that feeling of camaraderie. So if I felt like I had a problem, I didn't feel like I could go to him, right? So um, after September 11th happened, for a lot of people, um, speaking of the police department, I, I think a lot of people were in that same position. Like they didn't feel like they had anybody to turn to unless they had loved ones at home or maybe some of their closest friends, maybe their partner, maybe someone in their squad, but not even somebody on a different tour. If I was working midnights, I would never go to a day shift guy to talk to, you know, because I wouldn't know what he's gonna, who he's going to go tell and how that story is going to get twisted. It just oh. It wasn't tight enough like that, yeah. right? We had our Joe's backs in the street. If there was a call for help, we'd be there in a heartbeat. But we didn't hang out a lot with different tours. You know, I don't, I don't know what they were telling their bosses. There's probably a little competition kind of thing. So it's not as tight outside your particular, you know, your 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 shift and your command right there. So you wouldn't you wouldn't go to again if you're a four to twelve guy, go to a day shift guy for help unless you personally knew them. It just wasn't done. No, uh, you. You have yet to mention any ambulance or anything. I don't know if I just have it wrong, but I know my my cousin's wife is is part of the um, fire department, and they're kind of together. Is that the same thing? Is that why they're rarely mentioned? Is it, I don't. Yeah, yeah. So so the paramedics are and the EMTs are through the fire department. Um, they work for the fire department. They are FDNY employees. Um, and I think one of the pictures, Kevin, you might have on Facebook or I could send to you is one of an ambulance down there that was completely just covered in debris from when the buildings came down. So you can imagine when there's an incident like that, they send ambulances down there, right? They're sending ambulances down there. The hospitals all called in their people, get ready to triage people, right? Oh, really? Have, they, but no, nobody came. It, it was yeah. very... You either got out and you've you seen the video of people just covered in dust from they were just running away, or you didn't get out. It wasn't like there was injury after injury. They were, I mean, they had people on standby, literally standing outside the hospitals, doctors and nurses waiting for the ambulances to arrive in droves. None of them arrived because people did not, if they got out, they were just kind of covered in dust or they never got out. So that was another thing like, man, like they got blood banks ready to go. They had everything on standby to treat all these injuries and the injuries never showed up. So oh. when that gets broadcast on the news and you see things like that, you're like, damn, like, you know, yeah. <laughs> th this is bad. The final number is going to be bad. And it was, and I tell my fifth graders this too every year. We lost over 3,000 people that day. And if you want to find a silver lining in that, right, initial thoughts was it was going to be over 20,000 because of how many people were in those buildings. So we did get a lot of people out of those buildings, right? 3,000 is still an absurd number. It's something you can't even comprehend. But when that day started, there were 50,000 people in those buildings, right, starting work. A lot of people were getting out, and that's thanks to the bravery of those firemen who ran up the building. They ran up the stairs. No elevators. They went up those stairs to get those people out of there. Because the announcements in those buildings, and they have it documented, they made the announcements for everybody to stay where they are. They didn't tell people to leave the building. Oh. They told people stay where you are. So yeah, right. So <laughs> you know, that's and, huh. brother. Yeah, and and you got to figure where the planes hit. Anybody above that was not getting out because they couldn't get out. There was yeah. no way past that. People below that were told in the PA system, stay where you are. There's an emergency. Stay where you are. And then the firemen finally got up there and said, get the hell out of here. Let's go. Let's go. Let's stay go. Let's go. Yeah, I mean, so again no one had ever trained for that. There was no yeah. protocol for those two buildings. If we're hit by a plane, get everybody out of there. You know? Yeah. That's what I'm thinking is like, it's easy for us to say like, Oh, that's, that was a dumb idea, but it's such an unprecedented thing that, I mean, I, I can't blame them for saying that I, no, I wasn't yeah. there. I went on what they're right. thinking, you know? Yeah. And they, and, they, and the port authority who owns the buildings came out and said that it, it was a mistake, but at the time it's what they thought was the right thing to do. Right. So again, going back to what I said earlier, this brought out some good changes on how do we respond to things. In buildings now, we do evacuations, right? People, you're getting out of there now. You're not going to stay there and hunker down, right? They want you out of there. So you do learn through um, tragedies like this on how next time, God forbid, this happens, that we can save more lives and you know, and maybe make it better off for people. So, you know, there's something that can be said of this of like things change, um, but yeah, they had people staying in the buildings. Uh, until the fire department got up there, so three thousand is 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 a horrendous number, but it could have been way worse that day without without the brave 
people, those firemen and police officers, because, you know, and again, talking to military guys, this is like, you know, you guys know all this, but like, and you're telling firemen that building's on fire and a plane hit it. Now go run up inside of there, right? <laughs> like, yeah. what? You want me to go inside that building? Me? Like, there, what? There, there's a plane up there. Yeah. Like, I don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> you got to be kidding me. You know, you want me to go up there and carry this hose up there and like, like, um, yeah. all right. So like, and they did, you <laughs> yeah. know, it's, it's unreal that that kind of stuff took place. Yeah. I'm, I'm thinking back to the times I was overseas and, you know, up 18 hours, 24 hours, whatever it was. And those are sometimes that I just, you, you kind of really learn who you are. Um, you just, there's just little things you kind of pick out that you can't normally pick out, like whatever it may be. I know it, running off of 24 hours of sleep, this happens to my brain or whatever it may be. Is there, is there any things that you specifically learned about yourself through this? Yeah, absolutely. That's, I mean, great point right there is that there's things inside of you that you didn't know were there until you had to find them. Right. So for someone like myself, like dealing with that kind of situation at 25 years old, um, and what I found for myself is that I can face adversity. Okay. And this is a lot of it. A lot of it is going back to the landfill, digging through that debris that you can face that kind of adversity and realize that, you know what, this is something that I can come back and do again. Right. And, and, and I, and I kind of learned a lot that, you know, only a year into my career of that, what service is right between military, fire, police, like when you're a public servant, right. That kind of defined what it is to me. And that kind of set me up for the rest of my career. Like, what does it mean to be in public service? That means you help others who cannot help themselves. And that's kind of what I really learned from this. I, I kind of always figured as a cop here, I'm going to help out, but you're helping others who cannot help themselves one step further, who refuse to help. Right? So that is literally your job. You're there to help people who cannot or will not help themselves. And that was my biggest takeaway on that is like, this is my job. This is what I'm here for. And this is what I'm going to do. And I'm going to do it right. Right. If I'm, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it the right way. And, uh, and that was a huge takeaway for me and an eye opener to learn at 25 years old and something I carry to, yeah. to this day. Now I'm a school teacher now. And, you know, if I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it right. And I'm going to help people, children who cannot help themselves. And so I, I've, I've stayed in that same field of helping others who cannot or will not help themselves, whatever their reasons. Can I ask then? So, was there a shift in kind of the energy after this all happened to like anger? Absolutely. Yeah. What did yeah, that look, what did that look like? Good one. Um, so, you know, in, for, are you talking about like within the police department or in the country at that time? Um, both. Okay. So within the police department, obviously you have to be a little more professional about it. Um, but there was definitely an anger of like, you know, how dare you? One of those kind of things. And that happens a lot with the younger cops, a lot of the rookies, because when you put on that uniform for the first time, you kind of have that feeling anyway of like, I'm the police. Like, you don't have the right to talk back to me. How dare you insult me? How dare you do this? So th there was a definite feeling of like, like, who, who do you think you are? I mean, you have no idea what you just did. You know, like, you don't do that to us. Yeah. So there was some anger on that. And, 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 and the country was, you know, the country was upset too. Um, maybe not in the exact same way, but between anger and fear of like, wow, how did we let this happen, right? We trust in our government to protect us, um, and it failed that day, right? And it did for numerous reasons, numerous levels, right? Um, so I, I think there was some anger slash fear with the rest of the country at that time of like, how did this happen, and can it happen again, and this cannot happen again, you know, one of those kind of things. Like whatever, whatever you guys got to do in government, you got to make sure this doesn't happen again. We don't know what the answers are, but figure them out because this is what we want as an American people. Yeah, that's what trips me up so much about doing some research about like the people that like flew the planes is when they were in flight school and they were asking like, oh, we don't need to know how to land or how to take off. We just need to know how to fly. Like, what? Yeah, if that's not a red flag, again, we are reactive now, right? If you go to a flight school now and do that, now it's an automatic notification. Right? At the time, it's like, all right, thank you, pay pay the money, we'll we'll teach you how to fly. If you don't want to <laughs> land, that's okay. But, you know, that that's one of those indicators that should have been, hmm, maybe something isn't quite right here. Um, this doesn't really make sense why you only want to know this part and not this part of the flight. Yeah, it's, it's just, I mean, it, it seems so obvious in hindsight, but... I just remember that like 
nothing like that had ever happened yet. So you wouldn't really necessarily think, oh, this guy's going to fly a plane into a, into the World Trade Center. Yeah. You know, yeah. like you wouldn't Why think would he that. Not want to know how to fly or no, not know right. how to land. Yeah, and and they, I mean, it was also done with like box cutters. There, there were no guns on the planes. I mean, the, the planes were hijacked with you know s- sharp small instruments. So that was never even really like a big thought of like someone being able to take over a plane with like a box cutter. But probably because no one ever thought about. It. Obviously, that's a weapon, and, and you and you can do some serious damage in that. But none of those, none of the hijackers had a gun on them. Not 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 one person. Yeah, going back to a little bit of uh, leadership, though, back to, you know, the the people are angry at the government a little bit. Like, how did this happen? All that. How did uh, do you remember how George Bush handled that? I mean, he seemed to handle the, the rest. Well, yeah, I don't... He, he, he did great with that. And, and and living in New York City at the time, we had uh, Rudy Giuliani was the mayor, not the Rudy Giuliani of today, but the Rudy Giuliani of back then is his <laughs> leadership, man. He he. he he stepped up and became right the face of that city and led when we needed someone to lead because at that time I, police department our bosses they're looking for someone to lead and um and, and he led and george bush i mean between their words and their actions mostly their actions i mean those those, those two guys um they they did say for the most part everything right that needed to be done to number one keep people calm Right, because that's the first thing you gotta keep people calm right there. To respond, right? That there, there, there's George Bush right there, and to respond correctly. It wasn't like they went over there and responded, you know, three hours later, and you know, to who they didn't know. They did their due diligence. He wanted to make sure everything was done correctly, and then to make sure everything in New York was handled with the with the most resources that we had. Those two guys did that, so they they were the right leaders at the right time. Um, you know, it was a it was a huge need at that time and they stepped up to the plate for sure oh i'll just get one final question then and then we'll wrap it up um how how would you like people to remember september 11th well you have to hit me with that uh yeah. that I, question, Dan, okay? I got i got like i got good questions man. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's a good one there oh, I, I i guess how i want First of all, I want people to remember it. That that's that's number one, right? Because it's it's just kind of like to too many people now. It's just Sunday, and this Sunday it's going to be the kickoff of the NFL season, and there'll be a little mention. I'm sure there'll be some moments of silence, but I, I want people to actually remember it, and realize that over three thousand people, innocent people, lost their lives that day, and that there were hundreds and thousands of people who went in and did everything they could to save them. Okay, and make them better and make sure that they had normal lives after that and then continue that for months and months. So it's not so much I want I want people how I just want people to remember it and realize what happened that day and the sacrifices that were made and everything that went forward from that day um, to make it better and more safe and make and make it safer for everybody, because there was a lot of people involved. There's a lot of really smart people making decisions that really turned this country around and pulled us out of that darkest time that we've been in there. So that's my biggest thing is like, and, they, and you see it says 9-11, don't forget. And we say that as first response, like, don't forget, right? On this Sunday, just take a minute to think about, right, what people went through that day. The survivors, those who were lost, the first responders, the people in the buildings, the people in Manhattan, it affected everybody in some way. And I think if we, you know, as Americans, just take a few minutes to think about that, um, and I'm hoping someday they still make that a national holiday. I think it should be a national holiday on that day. Um, and just realize that there were sacrifices made and sacrifices still being made. Like my friend Terry, who passed away from cancer related to 9-11, that that'll go a long way if, uh, if people really take a second to think back of this dark day in history and how we've moved forward since then. Terry, do you have anything you wanted to add before I wrap it up? No, go ahead, man. No, I, uh, I actually had this idea when we were filming, um, and I wanted to do a quick moment of silence before we end this off. So if y'all don't mind, we'll do that now. I think that's a great idea.
Well, I can't tell you how thankful I am for you to come on and do this, Eric. Like, this is an incredibly important story that I think more people need to hear. I'm just really thankful to have you in my life to be able to tell that story. So thank you again for coming on. Yeah, thank yeah. you very much, Eric. It's nice to meet uh, you. And uh, again, You too, absolutely. And, and for you guys, like, you know, you guys are the best. Like, the military, we wouldn't be where we are without military guys and doing everything and, and ensuring our freedoms and, and volunteering. You know, I got paid for what I was doing, right? I know. I mean, you guys get there. I know like, to, to volunteer your service like that and, and, and lead our country. My hat, my hat goes off to you guys and to all your brothers and sisters out there in the military because you have things that other people don't have, which makes you guys military. So don't, don't, don't ever forget that part. You have something that other people do not have, which makes you military. Absolutely. And if you want to text me those pictures, I'll make sure they get uploaded and we will upload this tomorrow. All right. Sure. Sounds good. Hey, guys, I appreciate it. Thank you for the yeah. time and letting me tell my story. So Thank For you sure. So Thank you. Thank have you. Have a good one. All right. You guys enjoy your weekend. Peace out.